All right, First Peter, <clears throat> we're in chapter 1. And uh, if you need notes, uh, some of the gentlemen are coming around if you would like them. If you don't want them, that's fine. And don't worry, I'm probably not going to get through it all tonight. That's okay. I planned, and guess what? Verse 2 is not going anywhere, and verse 3 is not going anywhere, so we'll just get to it when we get to it. But uh, I, I think about after a long day of work, you come home, and as you're coming home, uh, you walk into the house and you see on your kitchen table or maybe an, a table right by the door, you see all the envelopes piled up and you start looking and you're like, Bill, 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 junk mail, junk mail, junk mail. And that happens on a pretty consistent basis. Or maybe you go to your email every day and you're like, spam, 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 spam. And, and you're just like, okay, that sort of becomes the monotony of our, of our day. But there are those moments when all of a sudden you're, you're walking home and you, you come in and you see that pile and you see that one envelope that's shaped a little bit differently. It's got the handwritten note on it. It's actually got a real stamp on it rather than just metered mail. Or you, you see in your, your inbox that somebody's actually, someone you know has actually sent you something. And all of a sudden you, you have this little twinge of joy, this little excitement that says, hey, I want to I read this. I want to I find out. And you, you, so you quickly look at the, you know, the, the return address, and you see that it's like W. Burgraff, and you're like, oh, pastor wrote me. Or you see it's from a, a friend or a family member, and you're, you're excited to, to read that. And you're like, that's good mail. That's a letter you want to, you want to read. And you, you enjoy it, and it gives you that spark of encouragement, that spark of hope. Well, for the believers in Asia Minor at this point, this letter coming from Peter is good mail. They know who Peter is. They, they realize who this, this individual is. And they know that when they start reading it, it's not just this pious wishing, good well-wishing of a friend, but it is an authoritative word from an apostle. This, this has some weight to it. And so there's, a, there's an excitement, there's a joy to, to read through it. And Peter wastes no time in getting to who he is. He says right away in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So as an apostle, it's important to understand that he comes with an authoritative message. And it comes on behalf of another authority. And he clarifies who his authority is. Who is the apostle of? He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So as he brings this message, as he writes this letter to the church, it was to be binding. It was authoritative. It was for the believers to follow through on. So Peter directly ties then this message that he's going to write in this letter, not just to himself, but he directly ties it to his authority, Jesus Christ. And so he says, as you read through my letter, as you're working through it, understand that this is just not my words. Peter is looking and saying, this is from Jesus Christ. This is the message that he wants you to receive in your moments of difficulty, in your times of struggle, in those moments of suffering, this is what I want you to understand. This is what I want you to hear. Now, as we talked last week, in the Roman culture, there was suffering very much at the hands of the leadership, at the hands of the empire, especially during this time. You have Nero, who is the, the Roman emperor, and he is persecuting. He is bringing a heaviness down upon the Christians. And so there's this suffering, there's this struggle that there was, there, they were facing. There was the mock the ridicule, the skepticism, the distrust of Christians, of believers, and, and often leading to trouble in their lives. 
As I stated last time, the, the threats, the mistreatment, the, discon, uh, the discrimination, and occasionally the loss of life for Christians, that was their lot in life during this time period. That's what they faced on a consistent basis. So as they faced this suffering, as they faced the persecution, as they faced the trials that were coming upon them from those outside of the Christian community, how were they to live? What was Peter offering? And Peter brings about that hope. He brings about that desire to say, you can endure, you can, you can remain settled in unsettling times, and you can go forward. And he designs the book to move us from looking at our struggles right now in the present and saying, here, here how do we get to this glorious future that God has for us in the family of God? I thought it was great just hearing the teens and talking about the importance of the church, the body of Christ. And Peter highlights that. He, he comes back and says, hey, this is a group, we are a family, and we ought to be able to be there for each other, especially as times get more difficult, as we face potential sufferings and, and hardships. We are, the, we are each other's uh, mooring. We're the ones that we can anchor to. We anchor to Christ, but we also anchor to each other in those times. So as Peter goes on, he wastes no time. He gets right into it in the first two verses, laying the foundation for believers he does this and he says, okay, through God, how are we relating? Through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit. You're going to notice in verse 2, all three members of the Godhead present, involved in our relationship to, to God, the, the, the Trinity at work in our salvation. And so he talks about um, his greeting to them. And as he talks, he says his greeting here is considered one of the most theologically rich and it is one of the dense, most densely packed openings. When you, when you get a commentary on a book of the Bible, oftentimes when you get the, the greeting, it's like one or two, three pages. I have one of the commentaries that I was reading through has 50 pages on the first two verses of 1 Peter because it is just loaded with theologically rich content. And again, we're not going to get it done in 30 minutes. We're, not, we're, we will, we're just not going to dive in as deep as some of those commentators do. But it's designed really to give us, a, give us a lift of encouragement to say, hey, as believers of Christ, what, what can we find in here that's going to start to lay a foundation, to, to lay the framework for the future? We're, uh, we're currently working on planning to build a deck in our, in our, in our yard. And as I'm going through and doing all of this, I was talking with Pastor John. He's like, have you looked at the codes on decks? I'm like, oh codes. I hate bureaucracy at work right there. It's finest. The, the codes for decks are about, it's about an inch thick on all these building codes, all these things you have to do, you have to make sure. And I understand why it's there. It's to make sure that when you're all out on my deck that it doesn't fall over and you know, you all get injured. I, I get that. It's overkill though. But the, it's designed for me to look and to know, okay, what am I supposed to use for this type of framework? What am I supposed to use to, to keep me safe and to, to make sure things are done right? First Peter here, and especially in these first two verses, it's the, it's the framework. Peter lays a framework for our theology for the rest of the book. He's saying this is who you are. And when you understand your identity in Christ, your identity in God the Father, your identity through the working of the Spirit, it begins to help you to understand the rest of the things that, that are going to come out. And so by virtue of our faith, for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they have this new relationship with God. And because of this new relationship with God, there's this change to my identity. It, there's something new that has happened. 
And so Peter highlights that this identity. What are we? What are we as believers? As believers, we are identified as elect. Notice in, depending on which version you have, the word elect is going to show up either in verse 1 or verse 2, and I'll explain that here in just a, a second. But if you have your uh, King James in front of you, it's verse 2, it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The word elect has this idea of we have a personal relationship with God. And it also brings about the idea of we as a group, we are a people that is originated with and in God himself. We are, as believers, we are the elect. Now, we'll, we can get into some of the, the theological stuff here in a second, but it's basically, it's a term of endearment. God used this term of Israel. He said, I, they are my chosen people. I have a dearness and a fondness for them. And you can look at those verses and, and many others where it talks about the endearment that God places. So Peter, again, is going to use this term that was designed and initially toward Israel, and he's going to say to believers, guess what? That same endearment, that same love, that same fondness that God has, that same steadfast covenantal-type love that God has for Israel, he has for us as believers. There is a great love that God has for his people. Now, we're going to put that in the context of the suffering and the struggling. We're like, well, what, does that really work? Does that really happen? And, and Peter is saying, we are loved by God the Father. When we got saved, God granted upon us, he bestowed upon us a covenantal style love, affection. Now, it's not looking and saying, we are Israel. We're not. It is talking about when, when I enter in, when you, those of you who are saved, entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God, through Jesus, there was a, a, a covenant of sorts that was made. A covenant not in the sense of, okay, now we're under the law, but there is a, a, an agreement that God has said, because you have put your faith and trust in me, I will do this. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And God, and Peter alludes to the importance of this faithfulness to other areas of our life. We think about, we are under the new covenant. We are, if you are saved, you are part of, the, Jesus Christ says in 1 Corinthians, this is the new covenant that what's in my blood. Uh, 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors of the new covenant. Uh, Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 12, it talks about through the shedding of blood, Jesus enters us in. We are in this, this new covenant. And so he, that term is used talking about that relationship that we have. There is a faithfulness by God. There is a love by him that is, that is bestowed upon toward those who are believers. And what happens is, is being elect, being somebody who is saved, having that, that term that is granted upon us, it makes us, Peter says, strangers. He says to the elect strangers that are there. Now, this word stranger that's, that's used in verse 1, it could also be in some of your translations, may have the idea of a sojourner, somebody who is wandering through. The, the word really means somebody who does not have citizenship in the area in which they lived. And so, so Peter says, because you are elect, you are strangers in this world. My relationship with God, my salvation that has occurred in my life has changed my citizenship. I am no longer a citizen of this world. Now my citizenship is somewhere else. It is there. Now, for the sojourners in biblical times, and even in our, our times, they're supposed to dwell respectfully in their host nation. 
When they come to a nation and they are there not as a citizen, they are to, to act respectfully. And they were, would be allowed to participate, to, to be involved in the culture to the extent that their values, their customs, that they matched up with what they desired to, to be part of in that, in that world or in that nation that they lived in. And this is, I, I think, really important for us to understand biblically, especially in, in the, the New Testament time. If, if somebody moved, so let's say somebody from a Jewish culture moved from Israel and they find themselves in Asia Minor, they, they would take part, they could live according to the people around them. They might learn their language, they might learn some of the customs, but if those customs began to violate their, their Jewish religious heritage, they would not take part. And so there, there was some differences in the people and how they lived next to us. It, it goes, I mean, have you ever, you ever been here and you're, you're driving around town and you hear a certain style of music and it's just thumping away and you're like, don't these people realize that this is not the way we do it here? You ever, you ever maybe you haven't done that. Th- think about it this way. When we talk about living in this world, how do we assimilate ourselves into a culture where we are no longer citizens. Have you ever found yourself saying this or thinking this? If such and such a a group of people, you fill in the blank with whatever people group you would choose to do that here in America, if they want to live in our country, then they should learn our language, learn our customs, and learn our ways. Okay, some of you are like, right away, you're ready to, you know, go for that. And, and you're looking, and I understand, according to U.S. citizenship, you want to become a citizen, you need to learn, you know, the English language, and you need to learn, there are different things like that. We understand that. You're to be a, a citizen if you decide to become a citizen. It's interesting to me that the word that Peter uses here, for us as believers, as sojourners, we're not citizens of this world. And yet, we often want to live in this culture. We want to be assimilated into this culture, the world. We want to be accepted. We want to find camaraderie in the culture. And yet Peter says, you're not supposed to. We're different. We have a new citizenship. This world is really not my home. So this isn't, this, this world that we live in is not our permanent state. We're not citizens here, though we want that acceptance, though we want that camaraderie. So in Christ, Peter's saying, you are elect exiles. In God, we are elect exiles living here on earth, and yet we have to still figure out how do we live in this world when it's complex, when it's confusing. Even as Pastor alluded to this morning, I think it was in Sunday school, talking about the, the biomedical decisions and the ethics that we're facing that's so accepted by our culture, and yet we as believers have to look and say, wait, is this acceptable? How do I navigate that? How do I, how do I balance it out? And so we often, and I've talked about this before, we, we went from one camp of being somebody who is completely indulged in the culture because I wasn't a believer and I could do and live and I, and I chose to do whatever I wanted to do. Then I get saved, and I find myself wrestling with, wait, how far, what do I do? Do I, do I, you know, where do I go? How do I act? What should I be like? And so we, we at times find ourselves going to a complete other end of cultural isolation. We want to completely get away from all things of the world, and we do. But yet, the more we isolate, the less interaction I now have with people who need the gospel. How do I, how do I show them the good works that they might glorify the, day, the Father in the day of visitation? How do I show and evidence a difference in my lifestyle so that when they ask me, 
Well, if I just, if I become a hermit and I become a monk who never, you know, is off in the distance. So how do I, how do I find that balance? And we, we seek for a, a cultural insulation where we talk about, yes, we're, we're in this world. This world's not my home. I don't need to accept all of the things of this culture and of the, of the worldviews that are being presented. And yet I need to find a way to be able to insulate myself, my family from the dangers of the world, and yet still be able to be close enough to be able, with people, to be able to share the gospel. Because I want to, but the danger of assimilation, the danger of going too far, which sadly churches are doing, they just want to be so much like the world that you can't tell the difference between the church and the world in, in some places. The danger is that there becomes a defection from the faith. That, that individuals, once they get a taste of the world, they just keep going and going and going. And we have to figure out, and Peter's going to help us as we go further in the book to understand how do we live holy in an unholy world? How do we live for, for God when no one else around us wants to? And, and Peter's going to give us some of those insights. And we have to realize that when we're living in this world, when we're facing it as strangers, as those who have been exiled who are living in a dispersion mentality where we've been taken out and moved around. Our existence, to, it receives direction from, and definition, one from the future, not from the present. That's where Peter's going to go with the salvation. He's going to talk about our glorious hope, our future hope, that we are going to be brought to a final salvation before God in heaven. He, he dwells and thinks about the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. And also, it comes from God and not from the world. So as we're wrestling through, how do we live? What do we do? What, what should we be like? We must draw our understanding from God's word and not from the world. So as believers choose more and more to follow that relationship with God, and they choose not to adopt the ways of the world, what's going to happen? Could it be the same, the same feelings that that some have had in our country toward those who are from another, another country, another race? Could it be that some of the same feelings that some of us had after 9-11 toward anybody who uh, had, you know, looked, even remotely looked like a Muslim, that there was this distrust, this suspicion? Could we as believers begin to face some of that? As you live differently and people start to wonder, that's what was happening in the Roman society. That's what Peter is saying. As we live holy, as we live righteous, there may be some who look and go, I don't trust them. They're too different. I don't like the way that they're, they're going. In a real sense, Peter is saying we are all foreigners of this world. We're exiles. We are sojourners. We sing those songs, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. But there's a reality that as a sojourner, as an exile, there could be some hardships. There could be some suspicion that rise, arises. And yet, it's not a political exile. It's not a political stranger. This is a spiritual endeavor. This is a spiritual dynamic where God says, because we identify with him, because we are his, we are strangers. And he goes on, he says, not only are you strangers, but you're scattered or you're... the." Dispersion, it talks about to these believers. He's talking about there's a there's a, a scattering, and he uses a historical term 
for, for this idea of the dispersion. It's called the diaspora. And with the, with the diaspora, the dispersions that happened, the exiling that happened, in our Jewish context, when we look at the Old Testament, it would happen to the Jews because of judgment. 722, the Assyrians come in and Israel is judged because they did not follow in faithfulness to the covenant with God. They had made that relationship. They had said, we will obey, we will follow, and they were not, and they were exiled out. There was judgment. The same thing happened in 586 with the southern tribes in Judah did the exact same thing. And Babylon came in and exiled them out. And they were dispersed. There was a diaspora. So it comes from a historical understanding that people of that time understood. Now in the New Testament, James uses it in one, uh, James 1.1, 1, 1, talking about the, the 12 tribes that have been scattered. Peter uses it as well. So is it a, is it a scattering of judgment? I think in this case, the dispersion here is not because of disobedience. It's in spite of their obedience. It's because they have been following God, because they are identifying with him, because they are living righteously, that the people of this world do not like what they're seeing, and so they were being pushed away. They were being exiled. Maybe not, again, politically, but in a real-life situation, feeling like I have nobody to turn to. I have nobody that I can go to and hear from because I've been pushed away by all my coworkers. I've been pushed away by all the, all the other uh, families on the, on the sports teams. They, they know we're the Christians, so they're going to keep their arms reached, and I feel like I have no one to talk to. There's a dynamic of that that we have to sort of, we, we should expect as believers. Peter says that's a reality when we're living righteously for, for God. The dispersion was not punishment from God's perspective but it can really feel that way at times. And so Peter's saying, keep on living right. Keep on doing. Keep on going the way that, I, that you are. Because for us, there is no real place of rest outside of Jesus Christ and outside of heaven. That's why we long for it. That's why we look forward to that day when, when there are no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. We look forward to that because at times in our lives, we, we don't feel very restful. We feel like, where do I turn next? Where do I go? And so this idea of citizenship, as we, as we play it out, because of their relationship with God uh, in Christ, their relationship with society has become troublesome. Not in the in-your-face, I'm going to cause a problem. It just makes people feel uncomfortable. Our holy living, as Peter lays it out later on in chapter 1 and verse two, uh, chapter 2, our holy living does not sit well with people. Because I mean, even, have you ever been there? You're not living right, and you start talking to somebody who is? Do you feel uncomfortable? Even as believers, we're like, uh, you know, I feel ashamed to talk. Well, how do you think someone who's really battling with not even close to God, they feel when we start talking and, and live righteously before them? And so we, we have this responsibility. And so when we were saved, we transferred citizenship. We are no longer citizens of this world. We are now citizens. We don't enjoy all the same privileges. There are things that we choose not to do, we can't do, or we shouldn't be doing because our new identity is found in Christ. And so we go, and yeah, we can go through all the citizenship things of, of the United States and what it takes to become all those, different, all those different dynamics. But when we talk about our change in citizenship, Peter starts to lay that out in verse 2. How did this happen? How did, how did we go from being one to being something else. And, and we know quickly, okay, it's when we got saved. 
For those of you who are familiar with theology, it's when I got saved, I transferred, I, I changed. Now in verse two here, we, we have, it says, according, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now the word foreknowledge here simply means, it's, it's the Greek word prognosko, to know beforehand. It's, it's from two words, pro and gnosko, pro before, gnosko, to know. There, and it literally is this idea we've talked about and pastors done series on Calvinism and election and all those things. God in eternity past looks down the halls of time. He's well aware of all that has happened, all that will happen. Okay, so it's, it's simply God, God well knows. And he did as he looked down the halls of time, so to speak. He saw who would get saved. He saw the response that people would have to the gospel. The question that should come up here is, what does this, this phrase, um, according to the foreknowledge of God, what does it describe? Now, depending on the version you have in front of you, there, there could be a little bit of, of wondering. Um, if you have an NIV, if you have a King James, if you have a new King James, it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The interesting part about it is that word elect does not appear in verse 2 at all. The, verse, the, word, the word is elect is actually up in verse 1. The, the Greek is elect exiles of the dispersion. So now, what does that, according to the foreknowledge of God, what does it describe? Now, some of, some of the versions obviously make an interpretative decision. They're saying that, and, and there's a lot of basis for why they say elect. And you go through New Testament text, but the, uh, those versions right there, they, they say that word, according to the foreknowledge of God, directly describes elect. But it can also describe grammatically from the Greek, I really appreciate Pastor Kim spending time with me this week as we were talking through the Greek um, and working on it. It can grammatically describe apostle. It can grammatically describe strangers or the exiles. It can even, some will say, grammatically describe all of verse 1. So which one is it? Well, sometimes you're theological bent because you need to say elect according to the foreknowledge of God because I have to prove that God elected and chose only some people to be saved. It can, it can influence your decisions. Or it, you could look and say, well, I'm not real sure. Which one? I, I can't be 100% dogmatic personally. I look and I say there, there are grammatical observations for each and every one. And could it be that in some cases, God leaves things nebulous, not in, a, not in a like he doesn't know fashion, but he leaves it nebulous because God well knows of our salvation. I believe so. That God, and he, yes, absolutely, before, before the foundations of the world, he knew. But what did he also know? He also knew our suffering. So could it be that the exiling, the suffering, the sojourning, as well is according to the foreknowledge of God, that God even knew that. Now, if you're a believer living in the midst of persecution, is it not comforting to know that not only did God know that you were going to be saved, but God also knew that you were going to go through suffering? That God is not caught off guard when we face hardships. That God is not caught off guard that when we witness and somebody really berates us, he's not... He's not caught off guard. God is well aware of that. So these scattered exiles of the diaspora, those who've been, they're there. Notice that they're the object. All, all of the, 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 the elect exiles, they're the object of what? The fatherly love of God. 
that he knows according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, God is well aware of all that these individuals went through. What a comfort to know that in the midst of suffering, God's aware, that God knows these things. We are called not only to the joys of salvation, but we are also called to the suffering, to partake in the suffering of our Savior. We like to focus on the one end, we don't like to talk about the other. And yet Peter's looking and saying, there is suffering. And God knows that there is suffering. And God knows that you're going to face some of that when you are living righteously before this world. And so he, he highlights that. So how, how did it happen even more? He goes on in the text, verse 2. Through the sanctification of the Spirit. So God knows this. God knows that we're going to be facing it. And he says, through the sanctification. So when we accepted the gospel message of Jesus Christ, we were not simply just cleaned up. Okay, we were given an entirely new life. You are an old creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The Holy Spirit, he says here, is the source of our new life. He says, in doing that, we've entered into the realm of being holy. When he talks about the idea of sanctified, the word comes out of this idea of being holy. It's the, the same root word. And so when the Holy Spirit, when we get saved, he has, he has moved us from this realm of being unrighteous and unholy to having a holiness placed within us. And not only are we holy, but he is working in our lives to continue helping us to be holy. And one day when we enter into heaven, he, we will be confirmed in our holiness and we will be able to stand before God the Father because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so he is sanctifying us. So even in the midst of our trial, even in the midst of our difficulty, the Holy Spirit is working. The Holy, Peter's saying the Holy Spirit's there to help you. You don't know what decisions to make. You feel like you're making the wrong ones. He's saying that God is here. God is helping you through these difficult times. How does that happen? It happens in conversion, through, through salvation. Conversion is not merely some intellectual acceptance. Okay, I recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross. I recognize that God exists. Yes, there is, there is an intellectual knowledge that is understood, but there is more to that in conversion. Conversion is not simply just, okay, I erase the bad, I start over with a blank slate. It involves obedience, and it involves submission to the gospel. It talks about repentance, that I turn from my past way of life, and now I have faith. I, I, example, I exemplify faith, a commitment to Jesus Christ and this new way. So when we got saved, it wasn't just a, hey, I got out of hell card. It is a choice that we made, whether we understood it completely or not, it is a choice that we made to turn from this old way and to commit ourselves to this new way in Jesus Christ that we put our faith, we put our trust in following after him. We are able to do this. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has cleansed us. The Holy Spirit has made us to be holy ones. And so sanctification is not just simply this unseen cleansing from sin, but it's a lifestyle that expresses this new relationship in God. It's our practical holiness being lived out daily. And as we're living out this new daily life, this new holy way, that is no longer like our old way, no, lo no longer like our co-workers' way, no longer like our old family's way, questions come. Remarks are made. And the suffering, the tensions build up. 
but we know that we're doing the right thing because God has called us to this, this ministry of suffering in some ways, to this righteous living before the world. What else happened? And, and I think this is really important to understand as we finish up the verse here. We are called, according to the foreknowledge of God, or we are elect unto this, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. There is a, there is a movement toward not just salvation or not just this one moment, but there is more. It is an obedience and a sprinkling of the blood. We're not saved to just a generic spirituality, like, hey, I'm good, I go to church, and Jesus loves me, and I hope he loves you too. It is, uh, we're brought under this new covenant. We're founded through the blood of Christ. And, and we have this here. We are saved, in other words, with a mission. We have a purpose. What are we saved unto? Unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's really interesting. There's an allusion here back to Exodus 24. In Exodus chapter 24, you have the covenant that Israel has made with God and God has made with the people. And after Moses has all the, the, the commands, he goes and he reads them to the people. And then I think it's verse 7, verse 12 again. Later on, the people are like, we're going to obey, we're going to obey, we're going to obey. And the covenant was then ratified with the sprinkling of the blood. Now, we don't have that sprinkling of the blood, but the new covenant, it has been through the, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we enter into salvation and we enter into this relationship with our God, there is a mission. There is a purpose of obedience, of holy living, of following after the ways that God has established for us. It is not simply, okay, I'm just good to go. It's not a generic spirituality. The people here, they, they pledge their obedience to God, and then the blood's applied. The sanctifying work of the Spirit here has transformed the hearts of the people that Peter is talking about so that they can obey the word of the Lord, which has now been what? Made possible. How? By this, the blood of Jesus Christ. So as Christ's blood was spilt and shed, and as the Spirit through our salvation cleansed us and applied the blood, we are in a right relationship with God. And the whole, the whole uh, Godhead working in our salvation, bringing us to a point where we can stand before God as holy ones. And now our mission, our purpose is obedience that continues. That as we go out into this world, we live unique. We live in a way that is holy before people, that is holy before God, that as we live this, this mission out of obedience to God's word, questions come. Opportunities arise. We, we don't pass up them because we know obedience to God's word is to share the gospel. So when those moments arise, now I share the gospel. When those moments arise to make the decisions of to laugh at that joke or not, knowing that well, will it bring honor and glory to God, Okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? And so Peter says to these believers, he says to them, I'm giving to you, I'm sending you my prayers of grace and peace. And not just, just a simple grace and peace, but what does he say? That they would be multiplied to you. The, the grace was the Greek way of saying uh, a greeting. The, the peace was the Hebrew way. And really, grace is a, a peace is a result of God's grace. And so Peter is praying that those who are facing these sufferings, that they would experience the manifold grace and peace of God in their lives. So as I wrap it up and just thinking about the passage, and what are some thoughts for today? God is not caught 
off guard by any of our situations and sufferings. In eternity past, according to his foreknowledge, he was well aware of salvation, but he was also well aware of our sufferings and and the exiles and the battles that we would face in a world where our faith is off-putting. It's considered strange. We, We should expect to feel a little bit at times like outcasts. If we don't ever feel like an outcast and we feel like nobody in the world really, then what's it saying about our holy living? As we battle with this alienation, as we battle with the struggle of of having a peculiarity, a difference, our only sure hope is found in our relationship with God through Christ. Peter is saying, hey, you're, you're going through this, you're facing these battles, but remember the foundation, the joists to your floor that are here are that you are God's. That he knows what you're going through. He, he sees those struggles. We should find some solace in our suffering. That as we face some of those difficult times, knowing that even though we feel as if we don't belong here, we belong somewhere far better. And this is but for a short time. And the future is coming and it will be far greater than what we face. To, to me, I was excited to just look and see the eternal trinity has planned for us to be known as his exiles. God is well aware, and he was involved in us in doing that, and that we have been called by God to live God's way in this world. We're called to be holy. We were not simply called to just say, okay, I'm saved, I'm safe. Who cares about anybody else? There's more to our mission as a church and more to our mission as believers, that we live holy and righteously for this world to be able to begin to cause those questions. And as we wrap it up, I want to leave you with one question and one thought for this week. The, the question is this. If our life's, is our lifestyle conducive to bring about questions and concerns for unbelievers? Just think about that question for a moment. Is how you are living is how I am living cause a spark, going to cause a question by unbelievers to say, what's different about them? Something's, something's unique. Why didn't you respond? Why, why aren't you angry about this? Everybody else in the office is angry right now. Why aren't you bitter about? And go right through, whatever it is. But is your life conducive to bring about questions and concerns for unbelievers? And then the, the statement I want us to just walk away with from this passage today. May our spiritual identity frame our earthly identity. Because we are God's elect. Because we are being sanctified by the Spirit to be holy ones. Because we are called to obedience. Because we are facing all these things in life May our spiritual identity shape how we live in this world. Father, we thank you for just being able to think about some of the truths. We didn't dive in super deep, and yet, Lord, we we look at that and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the relationships, the faithfulness that you have for us, Lord. I thank you for your kindness and your love. And God, I pray that you would help my life to be challenging to other people. And God, I pray that you would also help my spiritual life to frame and to shape how I live in your world. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.